Welcome everyone to episode two of the Cursed Land podcast, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Cursed Land, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. Just before midnight on September 8, 1987, Minnie Winston stepped out of her bath and into the strangest night of her life. The 77-year-old noticed a strange red spill on the bathroom floor. As she was about to inspect the unusual puddle, she noticed that the walls in her bathroom also had the same reddish stain mysteriously oozing from its surface. She stepped outside and saw that the hallway floor also had pools of the reddish substance blotted across the tiles. From the website ghosttheory.com, a story by Xavier Ortega, The Bleeding House on Fountain Drive. Will, she called out, come look at all this red stuff coming out of the floors. For a split second, Minnie panicked when her husband didn't reply. At 79 years of age, Minnie's husband's health was fragile and needed professional medical care. William Winston had to be hooked up to a dialysis machine every day to have his blood cleansed and the process would leave him exhausted each day. Minnie's fear turned into a wild confusion when her husband appeared at the other end of the hallway. He was in clean clothes with no visible signs of blood anywhere on his body. He stood looking at the red blobs between them both. The expression on his wife's face mimicked his own. Whose blood was it? The Winstons were confused and understandably terrified. Not knowing what to do, they placed a call to the police station, asking them to come and check out their home and the mysterious appearance of blood. Detective Steve Cartwright investigated the six-bedroom brick house on the south side of Atlanta. The police searched the premises but were unable to find any signs of a break-in or someone hiding in the property. Given the amount of blood at the property, there were two things that Detective Cartwright was sure about that night. That what they were looking at was in fact blood, and that it didn't come from the Winstons. In over 22 years of residence in 1114 Fountain Drive, both Minnie and William had never experienced anything like they had that Tuesday night in 1987. Pools of blood were found in their kitchen as well as in their living room. It was on the floor of their bedroom, on the walls, and under appliances. Given the amount of blood they found, it appeared to have been placed or dripped on the spot from a very lively source. In other words, someone inside their home had been bleeding profusely. However, there was no one inside the house besides the septuagenarian couple who neither had blood or cuts visibly on their bodies. Even when questioned about her husband's recent blood work, Minnie assured the officers that all aspects of the treatment were done at a medical facility, not inside their home. Dumbfounded, the police collected samples of the blood and submitted it to their lab for further analysis. It was now a waiting game for Minnie and her husband as they went to bed every night wondering whose blood had been smeared on the floors and walls of their home. A few days after their initial discovery, Detective Cartwright visited the residence to deliver news that neither he nor the Winstons would come to understand. The lab results concluded 
that it was human blood that was collected from inside the Winston's home. Furthermore, it was from someone with type O blood. When the detective asked, Minnie stated that it wasn't hers, as hers was not that same type. She then went on to tell him that her husband's blood type was A, which was confirmed by the medical facility that treated Mr. Winston. They were back where they had started. The blood type didn't match the residents of the house, and given the amount of blood that oozed through the floors and walls, Detective Cartwright could only summarize that the blood did not come from the Winstons. So the question still remained, whose blood was it? When the story broke through small headlines in 1987, Minnie and William received a lot of unwanted attention from the press and independent investigators. There were unwanted phone calls and knocks to their house at all hours of the day. The elderly couple kept to their word and stated over and over again that the blood did not belong to them and that it was in no way a hoax. I still don't know where the blood came from, Minnie said in an interview a few days after the lab results were revealed. And I'm tired of all these people asking me all these questions. If anybody comes here today, I'm not going to open my door. The Atlanta police never figured out where the blood came from and who it came out of. Minnie and William Winston never experienced any further spontaneous blood incidents in the house that came to be known as the Bleeding House. Located in the southeastern Tennessee city of Cleveland is the St. Luke's Episcopal Church, a historic chapel built in the 1870s. At the rear of the church is a marble mausoleum that, over the years, has attracted curiosity seekers from all over the region. The tomb is the burial place for the Craig Miles family, four members of who died tragically. The white surface of the stone is marred with streaks of crimson stain, the dark color of blood. From the book Beyond the Grave by Troy Taylor, The Craigmiles Mausoleum. John Henderson Craigmiles came to Cleveland from Georgia around 1850. He and his brother, Pleasant, operated a successful mercantile business, but John soon grew restless with small town life and traveled west to the California gold fields. He soon discovered that prospecting held little appeal for him, but out west he did make a discovery that would both change his life and create his fortune. He realized the travel and supply needs of the western territory and soon discovered that a large amount of money could be made in the shipping business. He managed to purchase a small fleet of six ships and began a shipping line between California and Panama. Not only could he trade back and forth between Central America and the West Coast, but he could also carry passengers from the eastern United States who booked passage to Panama and then on to California. The shipping business prospered for some time, then disaster struck. Mutinous crews hijacked five of John's ships at sea and made off with the vessels and cargo. Claims from his creditors soon wiped out his fortune, but Craig Miles refused to give up. He borrowed $600 from his brother, Green, and set out to rebuild his business with the one ship that he had left. By 1857, he returned in Tennessee, once again a very wealthy man. 
Soon after his return, John began courting a young woman named Adelia Thompson, the daughter of local doctor Gideon Blackburn Thompson, and on December 18, 1860, they were married. A few months after the wedding, the Civil War began. The Secretary of State for the Confederacy, Judah P. Benjamin, recognized John's head for business and appointed him the chief commissary agent for the South. He held this position throughout the entire war and reportedly used it to great advantage. Buying cattle and speculating in cotton, he sold goods to the Confederacy at a profit and made a fortune from the war. He was also wise enough to know that paper money was of little value and only traded in gold. After the defeat of the Confederacy, when the paper money printed in Richmond turned out to be worthless, John was not ruined as many other southern businessmen were. In August 1864, Adelia gave birth to the couple's first daughter, Nina. John soon became absolutely devoted to the little girl, and along with her mother, grandparents, and uncles, she became wonderfully spoiled. Perhaps no one loved the little girl more than her grandfather, Dr. Thompson. He took long walks with her in downtown Cleveland, where she was popular with the shopkeepers, and often took her on medical calls in his buggy. They would spend entire afternoons enjoying the fresh air and journeying about town. It was during one of these outings that tragedy came to the Craig Miles family. The day was October 18, 1871, and Nina and her grandfather were off on a short jaunt in the buggy. No one knows how the accident happened, but somehow Dr. Thompson steered the carriage in front of an oncoming train. He was thrown clear, but Nina was instantly killed. The whole town grieved for the little girl. John, Adelia, and the entire family were crushed by the loss and could barely function during the funeral services. When it was over, John began making plans to build a church in memory of his daughter. The Episcopal congregation in town had no permanent meeting place, and John felt that a new church in Nina's honor would be fitting. The ground was broken the following August, and St. Luke's was completed on October 18, 1874, the third anniversary of Nina's death. Almost as soon as the brick and stone church was completed, the family began construction on a mausoleum for Nina's body. It was placed at the rear of the church and was built from expensive marble with walls that were four feet thick. A cross tops the marble spire of the tomb and rises more than 37 feet off the ground. Inside the tomb, six shelves were built into the walls, and in the center was a marble sarcophagus into which Nina's body was placed. As time passed, the other members of the family followed Nina to the grave. The first to die was an infant son who was born to John and Adelia, but only lived a few hours. He was never named, but his body lies in peace next to his sister. John Craig Miles died in January 1899 from blood poisoning. Apparently, he had been walking downtown one day and slipped and fell on the icy street. An infection developed and turned into blood poisoning. He died a short time later. Adelia, who married Charles Cross sometime after John's death, was also tragically killed in September 1928. She was crossing Cleveland Street when she was struck and killed by an automobile. She was laid to rest with the other members of her family in the mausoleum. 
The stories say that the bloody stains first began to appear on the Craig Miles mausoleum after Nina was interred there. With the death of each family member, the stains grew darker and more noticeable. Some of the locals began to believe that the marks were blood coming from the stone itself in response to the tragedies suffered by the family. To this day, the bloody marks remain. What may have caused them, and why they refuse to be washed away, remains a mystery. My mother was just a young girl when she first heard the thumping tambourines and squeals of mountain warship coming from the bottom near her West Virginia home. My mom and dad were again it, but soon curiosity got the best of my friend and me, and it wasn't long until the two of us had followed the mysterious sounds over the creek, through the thicket, and to the bottom, where the big white camp meeting tent had been spiked into the ground. From the website AppalachianMagazine.com, a story titled, A Glimpse into the Snake Handling Churches of Appalachia. The mysterious sounds she and her friend had heard was that of Appalachian religion, and her vision was soon filled with dancing, screaming, and beating of tambourines, an alien sight to my mother, who had been brought up in the more refined First Baptist Church. It seemed like total chaos. There was people everywhere. They were dancing, shouting, yelling, and of course, holding snakes. My mother's parents would eventually find out about her foray to a snake handling camp meeting, and to hear her tell the story, her father was none too happy. Though she never attended another meeting with snakes, the sights and sounds of that one night have never escaped her memory. A handful of years later, the father of a classmate, who was a well-known snake handling preacher in the area, died after having been bitten by a venomous serpent, and as she recalled, family did not mourn for him, stating, well, he should have had more faith and he wouldn't have died. Worship for West Virginia's snake handlers was much like so many other parts of life, difficult, dark, and heavy in judgment. But where does the uniquely Appalachian practice of snake handling come from, and why are folks still doing it? To obtain this answer, we must first travel back in time to the closing days of Jesus' earthly ministry. Speaking to his apostles, Christ stated, They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Mark 16.18 For two millennia, the mainstream Christian interpretation of this verse was that Christ was speaking directly to his apostles, a church office that was to go extinct following the death of the last person to have seen Christ's physical earthly body. It was also believed that the apostle Paul fulfilled this prophecy when he was shipwrecked, as recorded in the book of Acts. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat, and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire, and felt no harm. 
howbeit they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly but after they had looked a great while and saw no harm come to him they changed their minds and said that he was a god acts 28 and thus the words of christ concerning serpents were accepted as having been intended for the apostles only for the next eighteen centuries throughout most of modern christendom however all of this changed in the opening days of the nineteen hundreds in rural appalachia around the year nineteen ten a well-known church of god preacher named george went hensley of grasshopper valley in southeastern tennessee began preaching a literal interpretation of these verses and to prove their faith he and his followers first began the practice of handling venomous snakes in the mountains of Appalachia. In the following decade, the Church of God repudiated the practice of snake handling, and Hensley and his followers formed their own body. Around this same time period, serpent handling in North Alabama and North Georgia originated with James Miller in Sand Mountain, Alabama. Miller apparently developed his belief independently of any knowledge of Hensley's ministry, and Miller's teachings eventually became known as the Church of Lord Jesus with signs following. Worship services usually include singing, praying, speaking in tongues, and preaching. The front of the church behind the pulpit is the designated area for handling snakes. Rattlesnakes, cottonmouths, and copperheads, venomous snakes native to North America, are the most common, but even cobras have been used. During the service, believers may approach the front and pick up the snakes, raising them into the air and sometimes allowing the snakes to crawl on their bodies. The snakes are considered incarnations of demons, and handling the snakes demonstrates one's power over them. Members are not required to handle the snakes. Some believers will also engage in drinking poison, most commonly strychnine, at this time. Over 60 cases of death as the result of snake bites in religious worship services have been documented in the United States. If a handler is bitten, it is generally interpreted as a lack of faith or failure to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Bitten believers usually do not seek medical help but look to God for their healing. George Went Hensley died in Florida in 1955 from a venomous snake bite. Believers generally adhere to strict dress codes, such as uncut hair, no cosmetics, the wearing of ankle-length dresses with pantyhose for women, and short hair and long-sleeved shirts for men. Most ministers preach against any use of all types of tobacco and alcohol. According to ABC News, an estimated 125 churches practice serpent handling in the United States, most of which are concentrated in rural Appalachia, although some are as far away as Canada. All Appalachian states, except West Virginia, outlawed the snake handling ritual when it first emerged. West Virginia's state constitution does not allow any law to impede upon nor promote a religious practice. Most snake handling, therefore, takes place in the homes of worshipers, which circumvents the process of attempting to obtain a government permit for the practice. Law enforcement usually ignores it unless and until they are specifically called in, which does not usually happen unless a death has resulted. Snake handling was made a felony punishable by death under Georgia law in 1941, following the death of a seven-year-old of a rattlesnake bite. However, the punishment was so severe that juries would refuse to convict, and the law was repealed in 1968. 
The American Civil Liberties Union has defended the religious freedom of snake handlers against various attempts to have the practice banned. And if you're interested in seeing a little bit more about this, click through the show notes to the link to this article. There is a really nice picture of a snake handling service being held in Harlan County, Kentucky. And there is also a really nice documentary about it, and I think you can find this out on the Internet Archive somewhere. It's called Holy Ghost People. It came out somewhere in the 60s or so. Um, But it has footage of some West Virginia snake handlers in action. An incredibly rare white stag has been caught on camera roaming the Scottish Highlands by a group of revelers on a stag do. From the website scotsman.com, a story by Ellie Forbes. Revelers spot white stag during hike in Scottish Highlands. The stag, which belongs to the red deer species, is believed to be among just a tiny handful living in Britain, with only three sightings this century. The ancient Celts considered them to be messengers from the afterlife and wildlife spotters dream of seeing one in the flesh. But this rare sighting was caught on camera by a stag do on a yomp through Cairngorms National Park on January 7th. Mark Brunel, 44, took the photos, while with Gothier Allen, 37, Flavian Valadier, 33, and groom-to-be Damien Zoyo, 30. The group caught a glimpse of what they thought were shadowy figures on the hills, and as they got closer, they realized it was a herd of around 200 red deer. The nature-loving groom, who studied biology, immediately spotted the ghost-like stag amongst the herd. It is thought this is the first time in recent history one has been photographed within a larger herd of red deer or on video. Close friend of Mark said, The weather was incredible. I could never even imagine Scotland to have weather like this, so we decided to go for a walk. We were getting into the middle of the wilderness when we spotted the herd. There were about 200 of them. It was magical. The groom is good at spotting animals, and he saw the beautiful white one. We got about 200 meters from them, but it was clear they didn't want us around, so they started to walk away. We continued with our walk, but when we walked back later, we saw them again. Legend has it that white stags are closely associated with unicorns, and their appearance is said to bring change to the lives of those who encounter them. It is thought the white appearance is caused by leucism, a partial loss of pigmentation caused by a reduction in multiple types of pigment, not just melanin. The precise location of the sighting of this creature is being kept under wraps to protect it from hunters and poachers. Robbie Kernahan, Scottish Natural Heritage's Head of National Operations said, It's rare to see white stags in the wild, so it's wonderful to see this footage. The white coloring is probably caused by leucism, which is a rare genetic condition that reduces pigment in the animal's hair and skin. There's a lot of folklore and mythology surrounding white stags, which are often said to bring good luck. It was certainly lucky for the person fortunate enough to capture this image on film. According to Scottish legend, King David I was hunting in the 12th century when a white stag charged him. When he grasped its antlers, they miraculously turned into a large cross. 
He was then inspired to build a shrine to the Holy Rood, meaning Holy Cross, at the site of the Queen's Holy Rood Palace. In Arthurian legend, the white stag is an animal that can never be caught and represents the quest for spiritual knowledge. A white stag was spotted on the west coast of the Highlands in 2008, another in Argyll in 2012, and one last year in Dumfries and Galloway. The friends hope the sighting is a good omen ahead of Mr. Zoyo's wedding to Carolyn Allen, 34, at the end of the month. And if you click through the link I've put in the show notes, the picture and video of this stag is there. Pretty neat. I was driving with my brother, the preacher, and my nephew, the preacher's son, on I-65 just north of Bowling Green when we got a flat. It was Sunday night, and we had been to visit Mother at the home. The flat caused what you might call knowing groans, since, as the old-fashioned one in my family, so they tell me, I fix my own tires, and my brother is always telling me to get radials and quit buying old tires. From the website, lightspeedmagazine.com, a story by Terry Bison. Bears discover fire. But if you know how to mount and fix tires yourself, you can pick them up for almost nothing. Since it was a left rear tire, I pulled over to the left, onto the median grass. The way my caddy stumbled to a stop, I figured the tire was ruined. I guess there's no need asking if you have any of that flat fix in the trunk, said Wallace. Here, son, hold the light, I said to Wallace Jr. He's old enough to want to help and not old enough yet to think he knows it all. If I'd married and had kids, he's the kind I would have wanted. An old caddy has a big trunk that tends to fill up like a shed. Mine's a 56. Wallace was wearing his Sunday shirt, so he didn't offer to help while I pulled magazines, fishing tackle, a wooden toolbox, some old clothes, a come-along wrapped in a grass sack, and a tobacco sprayer out of the way, looking for my jack. The spare looked a little soft. The light went out. Shake it, son, I said. It went back on. The bumper jack was long gone, but I carry a little quarter-ton hydraulic. I found it under Mother's Old Southern Livings, 1978 to 1986. I had been meaning to drop them at the dump. If Wallace hadn't been along, I'd have let Wallace Jr. position the jack under the axle, but I got on my knees and did it myself. There's nothing wrong with a boy learning to change a tire. Even if you're not going to fix and mount them, you're still going to have to change a few in this life. The light went off again before I had the wheel off the ground. I was surprised at how dark the night was already. It was late October and beginning to get cool. Shake it again, son, I said. It went back on, but it was weak, flickery. With radials, you just don't have flats, Wallace explained in that voice he used when he's talking to a number of people at once. In this case, Wallace Jr. and myself. And even when you do, you just squirt them with this stuff called flat fix and you just drive on. 395 the can. Uncle Bobby can fix a tire himself, said Wallace Jr., out of loyalty, I presume. Himself, I said from halfway under the car. If it was up to Wallace, the boy would talk like what Mother used to call a helot from the gorges of the mountains, but drive on radials. 
Shake that light again, I said. It was about gone. I spun the lugs off into the hubcap and pulled the wheel. The tire had blown out along the sidewall. Won't be fixing this one, I said. Not that I cared. I have a pile as tall as a man out by the barn. The light went out again, then came back better than ever as I was fitting the spare over the lugs. Much better, I said. There was a flood of dim, orange, flickery light. But when I turned to find the lug nuts, I was surprised to see that the flashlight the boy was holding was dead. The light was coming from two bears at the edge of the trees holding torches. They were big, 300-pounders, standing about five feet tall. Wallace Jr. and his father had seen them and were standing perfectly still. It's best not to alarm bears. I fished the lug nuts out of the hubcap and spun them on. I usually like to put a little oil on them, but this time I let it go. I reached under the car and let the jack down and pulled it out. I was relieved to see that the spare was high enough to drive on. I put the jack and the lug wrench and the flat into the trunk. Instead of replacing the hubcap, I put it in there too. All this time, the bears never made a move. They just held the torches, whether out of curiosity or helpfulness, there was no way of knowing. It looked like there may have been more bears behind them, in the trees. Opening three doors at once, we got into the car and drove off. Wallace was the first to speak. It looks like bears have discovered fire, he said. When we first took Mother to the home almost four years, 47 months ago, she told Wallace and me she was ready to die. Don't worry about me, boys, she whispered, pulling us both down so the nurse wouldn't hear. I've drove a million miles and I'm ready to pass over to the other shore. I won't have long to linger here. She drove a consolidated school bus for 39 years. Later, after Wallace left, she told me about her dream. A bunch of doctors were sitting around in a circle discussing her case. One said, We've done all we can for her, boys. Let's let her go. They all turned their hands up and smiled. When she didn't die that fall, she seemed disappointed, though as spring came, she forgot about it, as old people will. In addition to taking Wallace and Wallace Jr. to see Mother on Sunday nights, I go myself on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I usually find her sitting in front of the TV, even though she doesn't watch it. The nurses keep it on all the time. They say the old folks like the flickering. It soothes them down. What's this I hear about bears discovering fire, she said on Tuesday. It's true, I told her as I combed her long, white hair with the shell comb Wallace had brought her from Florida. Monday, there had been a story in the Louisville Courier-Journal, and Tuesday, one on NBC or CBS Nightly News. People were seeing bears all over the state, and in Virginia as well. They had quit hibernating and were apparently planning to spend the winter in the medians of the interstates. There have always been bears in the mountains of Virginia, but not here in western Kentucky. Not for almost a hundred years. The last one was killed when Mother was a girl. The theory in the Courier-Journal was that they were following I-65 down from the forests of Michigan and Canada, but one old man from Allen County, interviewed on Nationwide TV, said that there had always been a few bears left back in the hills, and they had come out to join the others now that they had discovered fire. And they don't hibernate anymore, I said. They make a fire and keep it going all winter. I declare, Mother said, 
What'll they think of next? The nurse came to take her tobacco away, which is the signal for bedtime. Every October, Wallace Jr. stays with me while his parents go to camp. I realize how backward that sounds, but there it is. My brother is a minister, House of the Righteous Way, reformed, but he makes two-thirds of his living in real estate. He and Elizabeth go to a Christian success retreat in South Carolina where people from all over the country practice selling things to one another. I know what it's like, not because they've ever bothered to tell me, but because I've seen the revolving equity success plan ads late at night on TV. The school bus let Wallace Jr. off at my house on Wednesday, the day they left. The boy doesn't have to pack much of a bag when he stays with me. He has his own room here. As the eldest of our family, I hung on to the old home place near Smith's Grove. It's getting run down, but Wallace Jr. and I don't mind. He has his own room in Bowling Green, too, but since Wallace and Elizabeth move to a different house every year, part of the plan, he keeps his twenty-two and his comics, the stuff that's important to a boy his age, at his room here at the home place. It's the room his dad and I used to share. Wallace Jr. is twelve. I found him sitting on the back porch that overlooks the interstate when I got home from work. I sell crop insurance. After I changed clothes, I showed him how to break the bead on a tire two ways, with a hammer and by backing a car over it. Like making sorghum, fixing tires by hand is a dying art. The boy caught on fast, though. Tomorrow, I'll show you how to mount your tire with a hammer and a tire iron, I said. What I wish is I could see the bears, he said. He was looking across the field to I-65, where the northbound lanes cut off the corner of our field. From the house at night, sometimes the traffic sounds like a waterfall. Can't see their fire in the daytime, I said, but wait till tonight. That night, CBS or NBC, I forget which is which, did a special on the Bears, which were becoming a story of nationwide interest. They were seen in Kentucky, West Virginia, Missouri, Illinois, Southern, and of course, Virginia. There have always been Bears in Virginia. Some characters there were even talking about hunting them. A scientist said they were heading into the states where there is some snow but not too much and where there is enough timber in the medians for firewood. He had gone in with a video camera, but his shots were just blurry figures sitting around a fire. Another scientist said the bears were attracted by the berries on a new bush that grew only in the medians of the interstates. He claimed this berry was the first new species in recent history brought about by the mixing of seeds along the highway. He ate one on TV, making a face, and called it a newberry. A climatic ecologist said that the warm winters, there was no snow last winter in Nashville, and only one flurry in Louisville, had changed the bears' hibernation cycle, and now they were able to remember things from year to year. Bears may have discovered fire centuries ago, he said, but forgot it. Another theory was that they had discovered or remembered fire when Yellowstone burned several years ago. The TV showed more guys talking about bears than it showed bears, and Wallace Jr. and I lost interest. After the supper dishes were done, I took the boy out behind the house and down to our fence. Across the interstate and through the trees, we could see the light of the bear's fire. Wallace Jr. wanted to go back to the house and get his twenty-two and go shoot one, and I explained why that would be wrong. Besides, I said, a twenty-two wouldn't do much more to a bear than make it mad. Besides, I added, it's illegal to hunt in the medians. 
The only trick to mounting a tire by hand, once you've beaten or pried it onto the rim, is setting the bead. You do this by setting the tire upright, sitting on it, and bouncing it up and down between your legs while the air goes in. When the bead sets on the rim, it makes a satisfying pop. On Thursday, I kept Wallace Jr. home from school and showed him how to do this until he got it right. Then we climbed our fence and crossed the field to get a look at the bears. In Northern Virginia, according to Good Morning America, the bears were keeping their fires going all day long. Here in western Kentucky, though, it was still warm for late October, and they only stayed around the fires at night. Where they went and what they did in the daytime, I don't know. Maybe they were watching from the Newberry bushes as Wallace Jr. and I climbed the government fence and crossed the northbound lanes. I carried an axe and Wallace Jr. brought his 22, not because he wanted to kill a bear, but because a boy likes to carry some kind of gun. The median was all tangled with brush and vines under the maples, oaks, and sycamores. Even though we were only a hundred yards from the house, I had never been there, and neither had anyone else that I knew of. It was like a created country. We found a path in the center and followed it down across a slow, short stream that flowed out of one grate and into another. The tracks in the gray mud were the first bear signs we saw. There was a musty but not really unpleasant smell. In a clearing under a big hollow beach where the fire had been, we found nothing but ashes. Logs were drawn up in a rough circle and the smell was stronger. I stirred the ashes and found enough coals to start a new flame, so I banked them back the way they had been left. I cut a little firewood and stacked it to one side, just to be neighborly. Maybe the bears were watching us from the bushes even then. There's no way to know. I tasted one of the new berries and spit it out. It was so sweet it was sour. Just the sort of thing you would imagine a bear would like. That evening after supper, I asked Wallace Jr. if he might want to go with me to visit Mother. I wasn't surprised when he said yes. Kids have more consideration than folks give them credit for. We found her sitting on the concrete front porch of the home, watching the cars go by on I-65. The nurse said she had been agitated all day. I wasn't surprised by that either. Every fall, as the leaves change, she gets restless. Maybe the word is hopeful, again. I brought her into the day room and combed her long, white hair. Nothing but bears on TV anymore, the nurse complained, flipping the channels. Wallace Jr. picked up the remote after the nurse left, and we watched a CBS or NBC special report about some hunters in Virginia who had gotten their houses torched. The TV interviewed a hunter and his wife, whose $117,500 Shenandoah Valley home had burned. She blamed the bears. He didn't blame the bears, but he was suing for compensation from the state since he had a valid hunting license. The state hunting commissioner came on and said that possession of a hunting license didn't prohibit, enjoin I think was the word he used, the hunted from striking back. I thought that was a pretty liberal view for a state commissioner. Of course, he had a vested interest in not paying off. I'm not a hunter myself. Don't bother coming on Sunday, Mother told Wallace Jr. with a wink. I've drove a million miles and I've got one hand on the gate. I'm used to her saying stuff like that, especially in the fall, but I was afraid it would upset the boy. In fact, he looked worried after we left and I asked him what was wrong. How could she have drove a million miles, he asked. 
She had told him 48 miles a day for 39 years, and he had worked it out on his calculator to be 336,960 miles. Have driven, I said, and it's 48 in the morning and 48 in the afternoon. Plus, there were football trips. Plus, old folks exaggerate a little. Mother was the first woman school bus driver in the state. She did it every day and raised a family, too. Dad just farmed. I usually get off the interstate at Smith's Grove, but that night I drove north all the way to Horse Cave and doubled back so Wallace Jr. and I could see the bear's fires. There were not as many as you would think from the TV, one every six or seven miles, hidden back in a clump of trees or under a rocky ledge. Probably they looked for water as well as wood. Wallace Jr. wanted to stop, but it's against the law to stop on the interstate, and I was afraid the state police would run us off. There was a card from Wallace in the mailbox. He and Elizabeth were doing fine and having a wonderful time. Not a word about Wallace Jr., but the boy didn't seem to mind. Like most kids his age, he didn't really enjoy going places with his parents. On Saturday afternoon, the home called my office, burly belt, drought, and hail, and left word that mother was gone. I was on the road. I work Saturdays. It's the only day a lot of part-time farmers are home. My heart literally missed a beat when I called in and got the message, but only a beat. I had long been prepared. It's a blessing, I said when I got the nurse on the phone. You don't understand, the nurse said. Not passed away, gone, ran away. Your mother has escaped. My mother had gone through the door at the end of the corridor when no one was looking, wedging the door with her comb and taking a bedspread which belonged to the home. What about her tobacco? I asked. It was gone. That was a sure sign she was planning to stay away. I was in Franklin, and it took me less than an hour to get to the home on I-65. The nurse told me that Mother had been acting more and more confused lately. Of course, they're going to say that. We looked around the grounds, which is only a half acre with no trees between the interstate and a soybean field. Then they had me leave a message at the sheriff's office. I would have to keep paying for her care until she was officially listed as missing, which would be Monday. It was dark by the time I got back to the house, and Wallace Jr. was fixing supper. This just involves opening a few cans, already selected and grouped together with a rubber band. I told him his grandmother had gone, and he nodded, saying she told us she would be. I called South Carolina and left a message. There was nothing more to be done. I sat down and tried to watch TV, but there was nothing on. Then I looked out the back door and saw the firelight twinkling through the trees across the northbound lane of I-65 and realized I just might know where to find her. It was definitely getting colder, so I got my jacket. I told the boy, wait by the phone in case the sheriff called, but when I looked back halfway across the field, there he was behind me. He didn't have a jacket. I let him catch up. He was carrying his twenty-two, and I made him leave it leaning against our fence. It was harder climbing the government fence in the dark at my age than it had been in the daylight. I am sixty-one. The highway was busy with cars heading south and trucks heading north. Crossing the shoulder, I got my pants cuffs wet on the long grass, already wet with dew. It is actually bluegrass. 
The first few feet into the trees, it was pitch black, and the boy grabbed my hand. Then it got lighter. At first, I thought it was the moon, but it was the high beam shining like moonlight into the treetops, allowing Wallace Jr. and me to pick our way through the brush. We soon found the path and its familiar bear smell. I was wary of approaching the bears at night. If we stayed on the path, we might run into one in the dark. But if we went through the bushes, we might be seen as intruders. I wondered if maybe we shouldn't have brought the gun. We stayed on the path. The light seemed to drip down from the canopy of the woods like rain. The going was easy, especially if we didn't try to look at the path, but let our feet find their own way. Then through the trees, I saw their fire. The fire was mostly of sycamore and beech branches, the kind that puts out very little heat or light and lots of smoke. The bears hadn't learned the ins and outs of wood yet. They did okay at tending it, though. A large cinnamon-brown northern-looking bear was poking the fire with a stick, adding a branch now and then from a pile at his side. The others sat around in a loose circle on the logs. Most were smaller black or honey bears. One was a mother with cubs. Some were eating berries from a hubcap. Not eating, but just watching the fire, my mother sat among them with the bedspread from the home around her shoulders. If the bears noticed us, they didn't let on. Mother patted a spot right next to her on the log, and I sat down. A bear moved over to let Wallace Jr. sit on her other side. The bear smell is rank, but not unpleasant once you get used to it. It's not like a barn smell, but wilder. I leaned over to whisper something to Mother, and she shook her head. It would be rude to whisper around these creatures that don't possess the power of speech, she let me know without speaking. Wallace Jr. was silent, too. Mother shared the bedspread with us, and we sat for what seemed like hours, looking into the fire. The big bear tended the fire, breaking up the dry branches by holding one end and stepping on them like people do. He was good at keeping it going at the same level. Another bear poked the fire from time to time, but the others left it alone. It looked like only a few of the bears knew how to use fire and were carrying the others along. But isn't that how it is with everything? Every once in a while, a smaller bear walked into the circle of firelight with an armload of wood and dropped it onto the pile. Medium wood has a silvery cast, like driftwood. Wallace Jr. isn't fidgety like a lot of kids. I found it pleasant to sit and stare into the fire. I took a little piece of Mother's Red Man, though I don't generally chew. It was no different from visiting her at the home, only more interesting because of the bears. There were about eight or ten of them. Inside the fire itself, things weren't so dull either. Little dramas were being played out as fiery chambers were created and then destroyed in a crashing of sparks. My imagination ran wild. I looked around the circle at the bears and wondered what they saw. Some had their eyes closed. Though they were gathered together, their spirits still seemed solitary, as if each bear was sitting along in front of its own fire. The hubcap came around, and we all took some new berries. I don't know about Mother, but I just pretended to eat mine. Wallace Jr. made a face and spit his out. When he went to sleep, I wrapped the bedspread around all three of us. It was getting colder, and we were not provided, like the bears, with fur. I was ready to go home, but not Mother. She pointed up toward the canopy of trees where a light was spreading, and then pointed to herself. Did she think it was angels approaching from on high? 
It was only the high beams of some southbound truck, but she seemed mighty pleased. Holding her hand, I felt it grow colder and colder in mine. Wallace Jr. woke me up by tapping on my knee. It was past dawn, and his grandmother had died sitting on the log between us. The fire was banked up, and the bears were gone, and someone was crashing straight through the woods, ignoring the path. It was Wallace. Two state troopers were right behind him. He was wearing a white shirt, and I realized it was Sunday morning. Underneath his sadness on learning of mother's death, he looked peeved. The troopers were sniffing the air and nodding. The bear smell was still strong. Wallace and I wrapped mother in the bedspread and started with her body back out onto the highway. The troopers stayed behind and scattered the bear's fire ashes and flung their firewood away into the bushes. It seemed a petty thing to do. They were like bears themselves, each one solitary in his own uniform. There was Wallace's old 98 on the median with its radial tires looking squashed on the grass. In front of it, there was a police car with a trooper standing beside it, and behind it, a funeral home hearse, also an old 98. First report we've had of them bothering old folks, the trooper said to Wallace. That's not hardly what happened at all, I said, but nobody asked me to explain. They have their own procedures. Two men in suits got out of the hearse and opened the rear door. That, to me, was the point at which Mother departed this life. After we put her in, I put my arms around the boy. He was shivering, even though it wasn't that cold. Sometimes death will do that, especially at dawn, with the police around and the grass wet, even when it comes as a friend. We stood for a minute, watching the cars and trucks pass. It's a blessing, Wallace said. It's surprising how much traffic there is at 6.22 a.m. That afternoon, I went back to the median and cut a little firewood to replace what the troopers had flung away. I could see the fire through the trees at night. I went back two nights later, after the funeral. The fire was going, and it was the same bunch of bears, as far as I could tell. I sat around with them a while, but it seemed to make them nervous, so I went home. I had taken a handful of new berries from the hubcap, and on Sunday, I went with the boy and arranged them on Mother's grave. I tried again, but it's no use. You can't eat them, unless you're a bear. That concludes this episode of the Curse Land Podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show, you're welcome to send those suggestions to feedback at curse.land. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later.